Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, starting in verse 13. Be on alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you would you would ought to have put my money in the bank. On my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. We enter in this morning to the conclusion of our study in John's Gospel, which we began over two and a half years ago. And I trust and I have seen God's grace in sanctifying his people through this study. So I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. But we'll look this morning at verses 18 to 25. It's a glorious conclusion. And I have prayed and I trust that it will be beneficial to you all. So let's read, beginning here in verse 18. Now remember, it's Jesus here now on the shore of Galilee. 
seven of the 11 disciples went fishing. They fished all night, no avail. Jesus was on the seashore. He instructed them. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat for a great catch. They did so. And in return, God filled the nets with 153 large fish. Peter goes on shore. He swims to shore, actually. Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. To which Peter responded, Lord, you know I love you. You know I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. And he said, then feed my sheep. Tend to my lambs. Feed my babes. Feed my church. And here now, verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore, this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Please join me in prayer as we ask the Lord to bless our time together this morning. Our glorious Heavenly Father, we come before you now with great thanks, and I pray and I hope with gratitude in our hearts to be able to corporately join together here as sinners saved by grace, by the redeeming work of your Son, Jesus Christ, to study your word. And I ask, Lord, that you would enable your people to grow in grace this morning through the teaching of your word, to have hearts and minds prepared to receive and to grow thereby. And for any here this morning who do not know you, who are yet walking in their own ways, Rejectors of you, may you transform their lives this morning and cause them to be born again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our subject, the conclusion of John's gospel. Very simple. Jesus is focused on the future of the apostolic ministry. The first 17 verses primarily focuses on the public reinstatement of Peter to apostolic office. Now, though he had denied the Lord three times, Peter was still his ordained apostle. 
because he ordained him. You know, if you remember back in Luke 5, after the first miraculous catch of fish, when Jesus said, or Peter said to Jesus, Depart from me, Lord, Peter was called there to the role of apostle. And Jesus told him, From now on, you will be catching men. Mark's account says that I will make you become fishers of men. And here in John 21, after this miraculous catch of fish, Peter's recommissioned to follow Jesus. And remember when Peter denied Jesus, he was warming himself alongside of a charcoal fire in the court of Caiaphas. Here on the beach, when Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? He was standing in front of a charcoal fire prepared by Jesus. Three times. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my flock. Now, this is more significant than we realize because it's a Near Eastern custom to say something three times before witnesses in order to solemnize that which is being said. It's very interesting. So Peter not only received a threefold restoration, but also a a threefold commission or recommission. So here now with the restoration complete, A life of service awaited the apostle, Peter. But there was, however, one more grand lesson to be learned by this man before Peter was able to proceed. And that is this. In order to be a dutiful shepherd for Jesus Christ, one must first be a a faithful sheep of Jesus Christ. In order to be a faithful under-shepherd, a dutiful under-shepherd of the Lord Jesus Christ, he and all others must first be a faithful sheep of the Lord Jesus Christ. Following the chief shepherd wherever he goes, leading the life of an undistracted disciple. title of the message this morning is The Call to Undistracted Discipleship. Now, this morning, it's outlined in your bulletin, we see observation, application. We're going to observe what's in the text, and then we're going to spend a good amount of time in the application of the text, and I pray, and I hope, and I actually am confident that it will benefit us all greatly as you walk away here today as a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's observe here, number one, what's in the text. Here we see first and foremost a prophecy of Peter's life and death. A prophecy of Peter's life and death. Verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, after this remarkable exchange that reinstates Peter, three times, do you love me? Three times, yes, Lord, you know I do. Jesus quietly tells him that discipleship will cost him his life. Now, by the time John, the author of the gospel, 
ends this prediction. Any vagueness on his part, being John's part, as to how Peter might die? All of that's disappeared. Because by the time this gospel was written, the prediction had been fulfilled. Tradition tells us that Peter was martyred in Rome around the time that the Apostle Paul was executed. Both under Emperor Nero in the early to mid-60s. And we all know that when Peter was young, he was very impetuous. He was an impulsive, reckless fellow. But now as a forgiven man, restored to office, the Lord says, I will govern you, Peter. I will rule over you. I will guide you in ways that you do not want to go. However, you will be willing because I will make you willing. And you see, that's the sign of a true disciple. When Christ comes to the sinner, the sinner's not wanting to come to Christ. He'll never want to come to Christ until Christ, the Holy Spirit, until the Holy Spirit initiates that relationship and draws the sinner to himself. And the very things that you never wanted to do in the beginning, you now desire to do because he changes the will. The supernatural work of God. If you're not doing the will of God, there's no reason to believe that you're a believer in God through Christ. So the risen Lord who will ascend back to the Father will regulate the life of this fallen and yet restored apostle. And never again will Peter deny his Lord. But rather, the Lord will take greater and greater control of Peter by the resident presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He will form and he will fit Peter for the day of his death to glorify Jesus Christ in a very great way. Now this he said, signifying but what kind of death he would glorify God. So notice, Jesus uses symbolic language of a Middle Eastern traveler here. Notice what he says. You used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, but when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you. Now, people in the Middle East would take the foot-catching loins of their robe and tuck them into their belt in order to travel, in order to move. And men, before they went into battle, they would tuck the loins of their robe into their belt in order to fight. You don't want to be a man tripping over your dress, amen? <laughs> when I was in sixth grade, I was in a scuffle with a, the neighborhood bully. And uh, we ended up meeting outside of a chain-link fence. And we're going at it. And it was winter, and I lived in the Midwest at the time, and I had a winter parka on. So we go at it, and uh, I get a few good licks in. And I says, I need to whip this guy. Otherwise, he's, this guy's going to rule my life, right? So as I'm scrapping with this guy, I look out of the corner of my eye, and my father is in his car parked along the sidewalk with his arm over the seat looking back watching and he takes off. Well, what happened during the fight is the guy took my jacket, which I did not take off, pulled it over my head, and was just uppercutting me all day long. So I get home, and I got a huge mouse on my temple, and I thought my father was going to yell at me for fighting, but he said, boy, let me tell you something. If you ever find yourself in a predicament like that again, take your jacket off. <laughs> all right? You want to be tripping over your the loins of your robe, or in that case, a parka. 
so the expression here is, look, when you want to travel, you gird up your loins. Remember in the great exodus, God's people were instructed how to eat the Passover meal. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, the word of the Lord says, you shall eat it in this manner with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So Jesus says, in effect here, look, when you were young, Peter, you traveled at the pleasure of your own will. But now that you've fallen, now that all of your self-sufficient attitude has been broken, now that you've been humbled, you will follow me, Peter, to death. You will stretch out your hands against your will. Now, this stretching out of your hand was understood to the ancient world to refer to crucifixion, plain and simple. And the stretching took place when the condemned prisoner would stretch out his arms and they would take the cross member of the cross beam of the cross, lay it upon, or in this case, gird Peter his neck and shoulders, tie his arms to it, and he would carry that cross, just as Jesus did, to the place of crucifixion. And they would be lifted up on that, hor- on that vertical beam and attached to it, having been nailed to it. But in Peter's case, tradition tells us that when it came time for him to be crucified, he requested to be recru- crucified upside down, for he was not worthy to be crucified as his master. Observation number two, the command. In spite of all that will become Peter, the Lord says emphatically, notice, follow me. Now this he said signifying about what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to them, follow me. Peter's life is going to end in violent death. But through it all, he will glorify his master. He will glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what Jesus does not say here. He does not speak of the glory of earthly pleasures. He does not speak of a glorious earthly kingdom. He's not speaking of a ministry of prosperity. And he's certainly not talking about your best life now, Peter. Not. Jesus is preparing Peter for suffering and violent death. Jesus began his public ministry, as I said, by calling Peter to follow him. Peter later said in his own self-sufficient strength, I will follow you, Lord, to death. If all the others fail you, I will die for you. But as you know, he failed miserably. So here now he says, follow me. And Jesus probably said this with a quiet but yet very commanding tone. Peter, follow me. Follow me. And the command here, follow me, is is, is a present imperative, which means, Peter, keep on following me. He says to you, beloved, this morning, keep on following me. Because you're mine, I bought you, you keep on following me. So here now, even after his reinstatement, we still see something of the old Peter that is left. (laughs) Something of the old Peter here. Observation number three. Peter's old nature rises up. 
verse 20 and 21. Peter, now turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? Now, without question, Peter was glad to be reinstated, charged with feeding the Lord's flock, his lambs and his sheep, the babes and those mature in the faith. But on the other hand, the prophesied view of a disconcerting death was, of a disconcerting death was much less appealing to Peter as it would be to any of us, I'm sure. So, Peter turns around and he inquires of the Lord. He's looking here at the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's how John refers to himself. So think about this now. After this most intimate and sacred time of restoration on the shore of Galilee and the temperate word of Jesus, Peter, follow me. He turns around and he's concerned with another. Quickly resorting back to a very worldly mentality. How often does this happen to us? He asks, what about him? Now, here's Peter already moving ahead of the Lord. What about John? Now, this is, uh, there's much more to this question than Peter's concern for John, although he loved John greatly. He's not merely concerned for John and his well-being. His question has to do with foolish curiosity. So Jesus replies now more sternly, follow me. Observation number four, a stern rebuke. In this rebuke, beloved, is to remember God's sovereignty and Peter's responsibility. Look, do we believe in the sovereignty of God here? We'll all say, absolutely, we we adhere to sovereign grace, right? We believe in the sovereignty of God in all things. Do you believe in the sovereignty of God Outside of Sunday, when we're all gathered here going, amen, hallelujah, right? Do you believe in God's sovereignty on Wednesday when your life is upside down? Do you believe in God's sovereignty over your life on Friday when temptation is pounding at the door? When trials face you? This is what we must ask ourselves. You follow me. In other words, Peter, you mind your own business. You do not worry about John. You focus on following me. You know, following Jesus is challenging enough, brothers and sisters, without worrying about the one sitting next to you. You, Peter, you serve my flock. You shepherd, you pasture, you feed, and you will do that by serving me. As you focus upon me, you will do that which I have commissioned you to do. And you will serve me with what I have given you. I give to you. I'm the master. You're the slave. I provide you with what you need to do that which I've called you to do. A lot of comparison goes on today in the church. There always has been. D.A. Carson comments on this. He said this, quote, sorry I don't have the quotes up here, I pulled these up late last night. Quote, we're in no position to criticize Peter, 
most of us are constantly comparing service records. Green is a not uncommon color among ministers of the gospel. Someone else has it a little easier so we can explain away his or her superior fruitfulness. Their kids turn out better. Their church is a little more prosperous. Their evangelism more effective. Alternatively, we achieve a certain amount of quote-unquote success and find ourselves looking over our shoulders at those coming behind, making snide remarks about those who will soon displace us. But after all, they've had more advantages than we, haven't they? It's all so pathetic, Carson says, so self-focused, so sinful. The diversity of gifts and graces is enormous. The only master we must please is Jesus. End quote. There's no use then for foolish curiosity. Observation number five. Not having all the facts leads to misunderstanding and gossip. Verse 23. Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that that disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, here's the problem, the common problem that has plagued the church for centuries. When you don't have all the facts, you start talking about what you think you know. And it leads to gossip. Hearsay. Rumor. I mean, it happens here occasionally. I heard so-and-so did this. I heard so-and-so said that. I heard so-and-so left the church because of this. Well, may we be reminded, beloved, of Proverbs 21-23. Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from troubles. Keeps his soul from troubles. Whereas gossips are troublemakers. When talebearers and, and contentious people disappear from the local assembly, you know what happens? Fires go out. It's amazing. Proverbs 26, 19. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no whisper, contention quiets down. There was a guy here two years ago, so contentious, he was knocking on my door almost weekly to go tattle on somebody. It was ridiculous. I was beside myself. <laughs> and he's gone. And amen. Now, there we have some quick observations from our text this morning. And we see a glimpse here of, of the future of the apostolic ministry. From the prophecy of Peter's death to the rumors that would transpire because of what Jesus said this morning on this seashore to Peter in earshot of John. Now, we know how the apostolic ministry proceeds. All we have to do is read Acts and we read the rest of the New Testament. But here now, this is how John's gospel ends. So in a sense, this is just the beginning. And we have the privilege of seeing the church born at Pentecost and develop 
as we read the scriptures, as we look at church history. So just studying the word, uh, uh, the work of John alone, if you think about this, we see a wonderful progression in his writings. For instance, John's gospel, it is designed to bring about belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, they help us to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And then his work in the book of Revelation, that's designed to make us look forward to being with Jesus forever. A great progression in this man's writings. So, question, what is Jesus teaching for us to learn here in the text that is before us this morning? It's very simple. It's in the title. The teaching, the focus is this, beloved, undistracted discipleship. Undistracted discipleship. Now, there's all kinds of distractions in living the Christian life. There's good distractions and there's bad distractions. First, let's look at some bad distractions. And I think we see them revealed in the parable of the four soils in Matthew chapter 13. Now, the seed, a sower goes out and he sows seed, right? And the seed is the word of God. And the seed, beloved, if it's the word, it's always good. So if it doesn't hit the soil and take root and grow up and flourish, something's wrong, not with the seed, but the soil. Amen? Now, we know that some of the seed falls along the wayside and the birds come and they snatch it away and that represents the devil. He snatches away that which was sown. These are people who have no ability to receive within the air gate down to the heart the truth of God. It's just snatched away. That's a bad distraction. There's seed that's, that's sown on stony ground. And that's the seed that is received swiftly. It's received with joy, but it's only received temporarily. It begins to sprout up. It takes no root. And as soon as affliction and persecution because of the word sets in, immediately they fall away. So opposition to the truth of Jesus Christ. You become a Christian. God saves you by grace. And all of a sudden your family begins to hate you. They ridicule you. The one that you were engaged to perhaps. Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. So that's another distraction. And then there's the seed sown among the thorns. It grows up, but the, the worries of the world set in, the deceitfulness of wealth and the love of money, all of those things choke out the word and they become unfruitful. Those are some bad distractions to those who only profess Christ. Because there's only one kind of good soil, and it reproduces what? Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold. So there's one good soil that is a- actually represents true belief. All the others, unbelief. Now, those are some bad things. We can also be distracted with good things. Mary and Martha. There's Jesus in their home. Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Martha serving the Lord Jesus. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a very good thing. But she was distracted with those good things. Luke chapter 10 verse 40 says she was distracted with her preparations. But we also know that she was distracted with the lack of Mary's preparations. Right? 
So we can easily be distracted. We can be preoccupied by good, faithful, Christ-centered people. Notice, Peter, he turned back. Obviously, Jesus and Peter are now, they've moved from the breakfast, they're up and they're walking down the seashore because he turns around. What about him? John's following behind, no doubt. Will he, Lord, have to suffer like me? Will, will, will following you cost him the same as it's going to cost me? Will he die like me? That's what he wants to know. Will he have to stretch out his hands and be girded by another like me, Lord? What about John? And in response, Jesus has to firmly take his hands, open them up, place them on the cheeks of Peter, turn his face, look him in the eye, and he said, Peter, you mind your own business. You follow me. So although the words of the Lord are blunt and they're firm, they're also very liberating, beloved. How are these words liberating? I'm very glad you asked. It's this. It's liberating because it frees us from jealousy, envy, and rivalry. It's freedom from jealousy, envy, and rivalry. I mean, it is incredibly distracting and time-consuming, mentally draining to be constantly comparing, monitoring, and questioning, why, Lord, why are they succeeding and I'm not? Why does my spouse not believe? Why are my children still unbelievers, Lord? Why does their family flourish in the faith? Why isn't my ministry producing as their ministry is producing? And it's here, beloved, that the Lord grabs us by the chin, gently turns our little face towards his, and he looks us in the eyes, and he says, Charlie, John, Cody, Elizabeth, what is that to you? You follow me. You follow me. Now, on the other hand, God does no doubt use other believers in our lives clearly to see the characteristics of Christ-likeness in and through them. They're good for us to notice, and it's even good because sometimes it motivates us to be more like Christ. Now, there are certain aspects to the Christian life that are common to all of us. Okay? So, three points of commonality amongst all believers. Number one, jot this down, still under observation, or uh, application now. Common to all believers, three points of commonality. Number one, we are all called to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. This is true for every believer worldwide, and it's true for every believer in the exact same way. And I say that because there's many people today who will sit next to you in a church, or you meet them at work and say, hey, I'm a Christian. They believe Jesus is my Savior. I believe Jesus died. I believe he rose again. And I believe that he's the only way to heaven for me. But my neighbor is a Buddhist, or my neighbor is Muslim, and you know, their belief system, because they're sincere, they'll end up 
in paradise right alongside of me. Who am I to judge? Now, warning, red light. If you profess to be a Christian and you believe that, you don't believe in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. So the scripture says you don't have the Father. The scripture says you don't have the Father. Okay? This is a wake-up call to many today. Hopefully not here. But Second John, it says this. You might want to memorize this verse. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, who he is, what he's done, what he proclaims of himself, does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching or the doctrine, he has both the Father and the Son. Second John 9. Number two, all believers, all Christians are called to a life of obedience. His commands apply equally to all of us. For instance, we're called to love one another. You've met people, well, I'm a Christian, but I don't like Christians. Why don't you go to church? Ah, the people bother me. Can't stand them. You're not a Christian. The scripture says, if you do not love your brother, the love of the Father is not in you. We're all called not to be anxious about food, not to be anxious about clothing, what we will eat, what we will wear. So our faith and our obedience is to be the same. Believer, okay, this is important because this is being taught today. Believer and disciple, those are synonymous terms. It's popular teaching today that says, well, some people are believers. They believe in Jesus. They believe by faith, but they don't obey at all. And then there's those that are more serious. Those are the disciples. No. Disciple, believer, synonymous terms in the Bible. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Tell your friends that. Number three, we all share in the same mission. Every Christian, we share in the same mission. To each one of us that has been given the Holy Spirit and the faith to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for our our salvation, a certain commission has been given. And we, beloved, are to live and act and speak in such a way that people are able to see something of Christ in and through us as we proclaim his truth, the gospel. Now, it's to this, these, those three things that we're called to exhort and stimulate one another. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We encourage one another in these things, things that are common to all believers. So when you see a brother or sister who lives in radical obedience to Jesus Christ, we should want to emulate that because we're all called to be and to do that. Jonathan Edwards' resolutions, he wrote those when he was 18 years old. 18, a young man. So, if here, are, here now our area's commonality, where then are things likely to be different? Differences in which we should not be distracted. Differences in which we should not be distracted. Now, it's one thing to to humbly learn and be encouraged by another believer. It's quite another to get distracted by circumstances of calling, circumstances of blessing, or opportunity 
of another believer's life. And the reason is, is that God does not sanctify his people in the same way, does he? See, Christianity is not cookie-cutter sanctification. There'll be many people blessed in many different ways in the body of Jesus Christ. That what's, that's what makes the bride so beautiful. It's made up of different parts. And it's here that things have a tendency to get difficult for many believers. They're not content with God-ordained differences. This is dangerous territory. So, what are the differences among believers? Recognized here in three different places. Number one, particular callings will differ. That which we are to do and to be. Specifically, ministerially. Okay, Peter and John, for instance, they were both apostles, amen? They're both apostles. Nevertheless, they had very different roles and very different lives. Peter called to a very public and very strategic ministry, and we see him in a very high profile in the early books, in the early chapters of Acts. Very visible, a public ministry, and then later he would die a martyr's death. John, on the other hand, also had a very strategic ministry, no doubt about it, but his ministry was more private. He was given a more historical, theological witness, especially through his writings. Look at verse 24. This is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things. And our best knowledge of John is that he died preaching at a ripe old age in Ephesus. So callings differ, beloved. The body of Christ is made up of unique parts in in many combinations. We're given different tasks, different relationships, different locations. Some are to marry, some are not to marry. Some have assignments that are more visible, they're more public, larger platforms, and others much less visible. And I always think about the people who are, who are locked away in, in, in a room in the morning here and they pray for me as I preach to you and they pray for you to have ears to receive that which is being preached, intercessory prayer. People hardly ever know who those people are. They'll be rewarded by God for what they've done with that which God has given them to do. So once we begin to look around and say, but what about her? What about his prospering ministry, Lord? What about his situation? Jesus answers us just as he did Peter. What is that to you? You follow me. Secondly, second, the measure of our giftedness will differ. The measure of our giftedness will differ. Now, we opened with the parable of talents this morning. Now, It's important that you know the context of that and that you know that I understand the context of that. And this is very important. Modern English that we know today uses the word talent for skills or mental ability. In the New Testament, and specifically in that text, the talent there was a unit of exchange. In other words, it was money. And that is what the master gave to his slaves. He distributed as he saw fit. Some would receive one, some two, some five, and it was up to them to multiply that which the master gave them while he was away. Now, even so, that parable lays intrinsic 
emphasis on this principle, and that's why we're using it as an illustration. To whom much is given, much is required. To whom much is given, much is required. So, is again, again, as I said, the master was the one who distributed or entrusted as he so desired to each slave. You know, you may be a one-talent person sitting next to a five-talent person. And you may be tempted to look at the five-talent person with disdain and go, Lord, what about him? Why can't I have what he has? Or you could be a two-talent sitting next to a one or a one next to a five in that context. Why is he so gifted and I'm so mediocre? You know, I've been around ten-talent guys before. They're the kind of guys who can write books faster than I can read them. Those kind of guys. And there's many of them. I look at the works of theologians of the past and I read chapter after chapter, volume after volume, and go, how on earth, but by the grace of God, did he enable these men to see as they see and to communicate as they communicate? What's the temptation for me? Trust me. I've thought, Lord, Lord, Lord. Why? Why can't I do just like a little bit of that? You know what he says to me? Same thing he said to Peter. What's that to you? You mind your own business. You shepherd this flock with what I've given you. Right? What is that to you? You shepherd my flock. I've gifted you. I've called you to this role. Shepherd my flock. That's freedom. That will free you. God is sovereign. He's the one that gifts you. Operate within your giftedness. You don't have to measure yourself with someone else. Anytime I do that, my wife reminds me of that, which is a blessing to have a sanctifying wife in a positive way like that. I used to serve next to a guy who was a one-talent guy, so to speak. When I served at another church, I said, he goes, what do you need me to do? I said, I need you to be here every Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. I need you to do this, 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 and this. That guy showed up every single Sunday morning at 6.30 a.m. to do this, 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 and this, and he had no car. She never heard, dude, I couldn't get a ride. He showed up. He found a way to get there. He was a joy to serve with. Just a joy. Others those who represent the two or the five talent kind of people, they can become lethargic and they become lazy because they're so gifted, they lean on their giftedness instead of on the gifter. There's other guys in ministry who have large platforms. They're very gifted, but they have moved away from the living word of God and they're doing ministry and all they're doing is building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ with wood, hay, and stubble. In the last day, it'll all burn. Their talents were made manifest, but they swayed from the faith, from being faithful to the scriptures. So the measure of our giftedness will differ. Number three, the amount of hardship to endure, beloved, will differ. The cost will differ. For Peter, it cost him his life. And think about this. He carried knowledge of how he would die for 30 years. Someone else will gird you, Peter. 
You will stretch your hands out against your will. That's how you will die. And he carried that with him for 30 years. Did that sway him? No. He only grew more mature to be in line with Christ to the end. So following Jesus, beloved, will cost all of us something. For some of us, the cost will be high. (laughs) For others, it'll be very high. And for many, this is where it becomes very, very challenging right here. Notice, Jesus does not hesitate for one moment here with Peter. He doesn't coddle Peter, but firmly said, what is it to you? He didn't say, oh man, gee, Peter, you know, I didn't think about that. You know, the way you're going to die compared to the way he's going to die, your, your ministry compared to his, you know what? It's not fair. You're right. No, never. He told him, you follow me. Let your focus, your concern, and your drive be affixed on me to do what I've called you to do with that which I've given you to do it. Do it. Follow me. Someone told me, this individual's told me this several times. They said, I don't know anyone that suffered more than me. I'm a modern day Job. That is so arrogant. That is so egotistical. I mean, there's no doubt this individual has suffered in his life, especially over the last decade that I've been ministering to this guy. But I'll tell you something. His suffering is not because of the gospel. His suffering is due mostly to disobedience to the gospel. Others have bragged. Most people who would have caved and become apostate if they've gone what I've gone through. Pride. That's prideful. Our experiential hardships are relative to one another, brothers and sisters. It's all relative. Why is it all relative? Because the one who's in sovereign control over the difficulties that will be allowed into our lives provides the grace moment by moment. I can ask you, would you be willing to die for Jesus today? Okay, what are most Christians going to answer? Amen. Right? Bigger question. Can you live for him today? Faithfully? Obediently? By grace? See, if you have to die for the faith, you'll die according to the grace he provides you to stand up and proclaim his name to the end. He also provides grace for you today, beloved, to walk in obedience to him. And when you fail and when you stumble, hopefully you're stumbling towards Jesus and not towards the world, amen? Because you're going to stumble. Peter's stumbling, but this brother's tripping and stumbling towards Jesus. Sorry. (laughs) Kent Hughes. I pulled this late last night as well, so you can just listen here. Quote, each of our lives is a sovereign creation of God. Our worth and our effectiveness, God's favor in our lives is not to be determined by comparison with others. We're not to be involved in unprofitable musings about the relative providences of our lives. How one brother has it easier than another, or how one ministry is fraught with hardship and another is not. Or why one believer becomes famous and another remains obscure. We are each simply to follow Christ. End quote. Now, John the author of this gospel, having outlived his fellow apostle, writes this gospel after, long after Peter's prescribed death. Look at verse 24. 
This is the disciple who's testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there's been a lot of discussion about this verse over the years. Notice it says, we know, we know his testimony is true. And and the general opinion is this, that this 24th verse is the testimony of some Ephesian elders that was added to the gospel. In that, they have simply affirmed the testimony of the Apostle John. That which is written is true. End of story. This is the disciples testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that this testimony is true. So why? Why are we to follow him without allowing ourselves to be distracted? That's the big question. I mean, why with undeviating focus are we to follow the Lord Jesus Christ? What is it that makes all of this high calling make sense? It's this. It's this. It is the wealth and the worth of the person and the work of the one who calls us to follow him. Again, it is the wealth and the worth of the person and the work of the one who's called us to follow him. And it's none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Look at verse 25. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. So, the superior work and the fullness of Christ cannot be and is not to be drawn out of a timeline of a simple 33-year period of time. In other words, the many other things which Jesus did are not and cannot be confined simply to his earthly ministry. It's much more than that. John is speaking of the greatness of Jesus, the fullness of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this statement is not merely about the amount of information that could be written about Jesus and what he did in Galilee and Jerusalem and Samaria and so on. John is speaking about the enormity and the prominence of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first and the last, the Logos, the Word. He's speaking about his very being, beloved. His being. For in him is all the what? The fullness of God. The glory, the power, the might, the blessing, and the honor. He always has been and he always will be. He's Lord of lords and he's King of kings. The eternal one. He is the one who spoke and the universe came into existence. And he's the Lamb of God who was slain before the foundation of the earth. The one who spoke his creation into order, he came down and he visited his creation as creator, but in a human body, beloved, in order to lay his life down for you. So as we conclude our study in the Gospel of John, may we not forget John's prologue. How does the Gospel begin? Over two and a half years ago, John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, 
And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness did not what? Comprehend it. In verse 14, And that word became flesh and tabernacled, dwelt pitched a tent of humanity among us and we saw his glory glory as the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth that's why that's who that's the master who saved us and that is the one who says you don't worry about her don't worry about him don't worry about that ministry you my loved one my little lamb you follow me follow me Peter learned, didn't he? Peter matured. And Peter grew to follow his master as doulos, as a slave. Peter would go on to write this. 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1. Simon Peter, a doulos, a slave, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So here, on this Galilean seashore, Peter stumbles once again. But the beauty is, he's always stumbling towards his master. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's a privilege to stumble after Christ, beloved, is it not? It is a privilege. You see, those he's redeemed, he continues to break. And when he redeems you, he breaks you. When he breaks you, he restores you. And as he restores you, by breaking you, he strengthens you. So we learn through our stumblings and our restorations to grow and to go where our flesh normally, naturally would not want to go. Amen? That's the only way you can go. The risen Lord teaches us to go where in the past we did not want to go. We had no desire to go that way in the past because we were dead in trespasses and sins, you see. Even as a newborn babe in Christ, you don't want to go there, but later on he prepares you by way of breaking, restoring, strengthening to be able to go that way, not in your own strength, not in your own self-sufficiency, but in Christ's sufficiency, just like Peter. Go. Think about this in Acts. Peter no doubt wanted freedom, but was arrested for preaching. He was thrown into prison. When he's in prison, an angel had to come to get him in the lock, get him out of there, right? What did the angel have to do? Wake him up. He had to shove him on the side, wake up. This brother was sound asleep like a baby. Now, he certainly would not have wanted to preach to the Gentiles, but the Lord moved him to do so. Not wanting to go to Samaria, he goes. He preaches the gospel. Later, he receives a vision from the Lord. He's on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner. Okay, this vision comes. A sheet comes down with all these unclean animals on it. The Lord says, Peter, get up, kill and eat. To which Peter replied, by no means, Lord. I've never eaten anything unholy. But what did the Lord do? He made all things holy. He makes all things holy. Why was Jesus not defiled when he touched lepers? Because he's the perfect holy one. Everything he touched was restored. He's the holy one, the perfect one, the flawless one. He's the God man. 
He made you clean. And you're still clean positionally because of Him. If you are in Christ this morning, you're covered by the blood of the Lamb. You're as righteous in the sight of Almighty God as Jesus the Son is because His righteousness has become yours. Now, this great vision Peter had, Peter no doubt would have wanted to see the Jews as superior. He resists for a moment, but his resistance is changed. And he goes and preaches to Cornelius, and Cornelius and the whole household is saved. He preaches, the Holy Spirit comes, baptizes them in the Holy Spirit, and then he baptizes them in water. Power of the gospel. Peter, yes, he'd go on to suffer. And not only would he go on to suffer, he would go on to shepherd a flock God's people who were under great persecution, suffering for Christ. And this is what he wrote in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered for a while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him. Be dominion. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. Follow me. Follow me, said Jesus. Rejoice that others in the body are following me faithfully as well. However, do not be distracted by questioning, what about them? What about them? Why me? Or here's the big one. Why not me, Lord? Why not me? Because all that will do, beloved, is discourage you. It will distract you, and more than anything else, it will disable you from looking to and following him. You follow me, and as much as we want to stumble, beloved, and I say want to because we will continually pull away in our own flesh, and you'll fall. We stumble after Christ, just like Peter did. We stumble after Christ. So I ask you this morning, Who are you following? You. Who are you following this morning? When you stumble, do you stumble towards Jesus? Because if you're not stumbling towards Jesus, you're stumbling towards Satan. Two masters, two ways, two masters with two eternally different ends. The master who's the way, the truth, and the life, master capital M, or the master small m, the prince of the world. You're following one or the other. If the Holy Spirit's moved this morning to reveal to you that you're not following the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, You must believe upon Jesus Christ. You must believe the gospel. You must believe he's only way. We're ready to prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning. If you're not a believer, do not partake. But perhaps he's brought you to the place of belief this morning. And if you truly believe, not merely about him, but you believe into him, the first sign in your life will be this. It'll be repentance. You'll turn from your sin. You'll turn from yourself and you'll turn to Christ and you will embrace him and you'll surrender your life to him. 
And then your stumbling will be toward him. Your stumbling will be forward towards the Lord Jesus Christ as he conforms you to his image. Come to Christ. Repent and believe. And the scripture says you shall be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you once again for the revelatory revelatory truth of Scripture that those are yours and those who have been called by you have been given the ability to see and to understand the truth. But those who are not, think of it as foolishness. I pray for your redeeming work today, the work of your Holy Spirit to transform lives of those who don't know you, to see the truth of you, our Lord Jesus Christ, to repent and believe. And may your body, the church this morning, Lord, guide us, help us. Lord, help us from a distracting focus. Keep us from distracting questions. And may we grow by your sanctifying love in always having a mind and a heart of thankfulness for who you are and who we are in you and walking according to the giftedness imparted to us according to your sovereign purposes. May you bless your people and prepare our hearts now to come to the table to remember that which you have done on our behalf, your broken body and your shed blood. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.